And being that it's just one service this morning, uh, they're gonna hate me, but I can go as long as I want because I don't have to be out for another service. So <laughs> welcome this morning. If you're new with us, this will be three and a half hours and it'll be awesome. So uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 32 this morning. Um, we're gonna end this morning by taking communion with one another. We'll have one of our elders come up and lead us in a communion time afterwards. But we're gonna continue our study through the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. We're gonna get into a story this morning that may seem a bit like a replay, um, kind of a reiteration. You, maybe you've heard it before. We talked about it about a month ago. We read uh, Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000, and this morning we get into the feeding of the 4,000. But turn to Matthew uh, 15, 32. That's where we're gonna be at today. And for those of you that are new with us, we try to make a habit out of just preaching through the Bible as opposed to kind of like doing whatever we want and cherry picking things. And so that feels right to us. And so today um, we're going to approach another story in the Bible, much like one that we read uh, a few weeks ago. So Matthew 15, verse 32, it says this. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so, uh, so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. So just before we pray to get started, as a reiteration from before, I said when, when it said he fed 5,000 men and women and children prior, we think that could put it in the neighborhood of 18 to 20,000 people that were there. This time, again, we're probably in the neighborhood of 12 to 15,000 people that are present. It's a massive number. I was thinking this morning about how inconvenient it is to probably find parking and get in here and squeeze into these chairs when we're all in one service like this and sort of thinking, it's probably good for you to feel that level of first world inconvenience, right? Um, because as 15,000 are gathering on a mountainside, to hear from Jesus, imagine the screams of the children and, and all the chaos that's probably taking place and Jesus sits down there to give them some instruction. What an amazing thing and what a cool example we have this morning as we're all gathered in here together. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we get together. God, we do pray as we do every week that your word would impart something into us this morning, Jesus. We open up our hearts to hear from you. Speak to us, Jesus by way of your spirit. God, we give this time for you, to you, and I thank you, Jesus, for each and every individual in this room, because I know that it's not coincidence that you gave them the air in their lungs to get up this morning to be here for a specific purpose. And I just pray, Jesus, that you'd speak to each person in this room this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, this passage that we just read is sort of an extension from the section that Kyle preached on last week. Didn't Kyle do an amazing job? Killed it. Where's he at? Where'd he go? He left. Good job, Kyle. You did a great job. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, if you remember last week, we saw Jesus and his disciples. They enter this Gentile region, 
This means a non-Jewish area, region, and immediately as they enter this area, they're confronted by this woman whose daughter's demon-possessed. And so she comes to Jesus, and she's seeking freedom and deliverance on behalf of her daughter, and she says, O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, is what she says to Jesus. And so this passage ends with Jesus healing this woman's daughter and not only giving this woman exactly what she wanted, but then he goes away from there and the crowds begin to gather around Jesus and Jesus begins teaching and he begins healing all of them. We're talking thousands of people that are bringing the lame and the crippled to Jesus and they're being healed. It says, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. What does it mean to wonder? It literally means to be marveled, to be amazed, and it caused them to glorify the God of Israel. Now, Keep in mind, these are Gentiles. It says in Mark's gospel account of the same story that this all happened in the Decapolis, is what it says, which was this region on the south uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Deca, meaning 10, Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, Polis meaning cities. So 10 cities that made up this, this area. And so these were 10 Roman, primarily Gentile cities near the Galilee. So you had some mixing of the cultures, but primarily Gentiles. And you might wonder why this is significant. But remember, Jesus said, as Kyle talked about last week, that he came first to the Jews, that he came first to God's chosen people, and that the majority of Jesus' life and ministry is spent investing in and preaching to the Jews. And it wasn't that God didn't care about everybody else that was not Jew, the Gentiles, but it was through Jesus that God began to expand this gospel into every t- tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it's really in passages like this that we see the heart of God for all people, because you have to understand the hostility that, ha- that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean, like beyond God's love and care. The Romans had dozens of different gods, a God for everything. And it's interesting even talking about the Decapolis this morning because I've literally stood in the ruins of one of those 10 cities, Bet Shean, been there with, with Dan and Sharon, standing in Israel. And you see these amazing ornate structures in one of these cities. There are quarters, like, I don't know, there's some kids in here, but there's quarters for all the temple prostitutes. You can literally see them. They're still there that they would go and perform acts with in order as worship to their gods. They, they, you, you see the temple of Zeus. That's, there's still piece of it, pieces of it that are erect there. And it's eerie to sort of stand in this space and imagine what has taken place on this land. Like it's, it's creepy to think about. But this is why the, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as, as, as being so far gone, because they, ever, they worshiped everything but the one true God of Israel. And so we start to see the heart of God when we see Jesus step in, and he heals this Canaanite woman's daughter, this Gentile. And then following this, Jesus goes to the Decapolis, and then he heals probably more Gentiles. And this would have been unheard of for this Jewish man to even venture off into Gentile territory, let alone show care and mercy towards these Gentile people. And it just, just briefly, um, you, you read what the response was to 
uh, Jesus stepping in and healing these Gentiles, what does it say? It says, and they glorified the God of what? Israel, which is crazy. This is like a monumental statement. Gentiles glorifying the God of Israel. So today as we come into verse 32, we have that same crowd gathered, and, and they're gathered around Jesus and his disciples, and you can kind of picture this scene, right? Jesus is teaching. Jesus is doing his thing. He's healing. He's working all kinds of miracles, and the disciples are probably doing a lot of crowd control, kind of sitting back, trying to make sure that things are okay. But what we need to understand about this section before we get into this passage is that what Matthew's trying to give us here is sort of a picture of what the kingdom of God is like, what it looks like, what the kingdom of God does when it breaks into our world. You see, when Jesus came, he came and he inaugurated this kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom would one day be consummated when Jesus returns, but Jesus started it, Jesus will fulfill it. Jesus brought this kingdom with him here on this earth. And this kingdom is now, this kingdom of God, is now among us through Jesus, by his spirit. And so when the kingdom of God broke in with power, power to set the captives free, power to move people from death to life, power to bring new life to lost people, there's a word for this new life that we talk about. And it's a word that gets thrown around a ton in Christian circles, and it's kind of been diluted over the years, but the word is salvation. And what you need to know about salvation is that salvation, and I want you to hear this this morning, salvation is sort of a, a movement. Salvation is always a movement. And so salvation is moving from this domain of darkness to the kingdom of God, in his beloved son, Jesus. And so it's this movement from chains that we were once shackled in to freedom and liberty. It's this movement from darkness to light. It's this movement from condemnation to justification, from death to life. Like this is the work that Jesus is all about, that he's doing. And it's this massive movement. And it's such an incredibly massive transition period that we often refer to it as what? We call it being born again being born again by his spirit, by the work of Jesus. And so we have the spirit within us that's made alive when Jesus' spirit breathes new life in us. And so we become these brand new creations. We, we see for the first time, it's like being born all over again in our life, reborn. And salvation is important to talk about, and it's important to think about regardless of who you are or where you, you're coming from this morning. I don't know where you're all at, but for those of you who are here and maybe even this morning, you're a little bit skeptical about this Jesus thing. Maybe you even identify as a skeptic, and you're skeptical of religion in general. Maybe you're skeptical of Christianity specifically. I hope that you'd open up your heart this morning enough to hear about salvation, because if you're going to be skeptical of it, you probably need to know what it is that it's all about. Salvation is the heart of the matter. So for those of you who have already trusted in Jesus, you need to understand, as I said, that salvation is this movement, which means our lives need to be marked by this movement. It's not just a one and done, I got saved. It's this movement in life that you're continuing to be saved. You're continuing to move with Jesus through life. Salvation doesn't just move us from one moment in time. 
Salvation isn't just about becoming a Christian and just about having this conversion experience or the salvation experience. It's about movement, like in our everyday life, drawing closer and closer to God, walking with him in greater and greater intimacy on a daily basis. It's walking with Jesus, and salvation is literally the stuff of the Christian life. It's what it's all about. It's the culmination of it all. So Matthew, as he writes this section, he has some specific things in mind. And so as I was thinking about this, I realized it's sort of like a diamond. And I want you to imagine this this morning. Now, salvation in Jesus is kind of like a diamond. And Matthew's sort of, sort of holding up this diamond to us, and he just keeps turning it. And he turns it, the light hits it from different angles, and we learn a little bit more about salvation, about the Lord. We see different facets of this diamond. And so today, what I want you to do as we walk through this text is to see three specific facets of this diamond in regards to salvation in Jesus. And so I know these aren't the only three facets, but there are three that I want us to see some this morning so that we can enjoy the beauty of what we've actually been given, this treasure that we've been granted in Jesus. And so I realize there's many more facets to the diamond, but here's the three I want to look at. So let's have a look at the first facet of salvation this morning. Um, so picture this scene with me. Jesus and his disciples, they're surrounded by a ton of people, 4,000 men plus women and children, 12 to 15,000 people, massive crowd. This crowd is like pressing in on all of them, and the disciples are sort of doing crowd control for Jesus, and Jesus is just continuing to do what he does. And then in verse 32, Jesus sort of calls this huddle, and here's what he says. He says, it says, then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So this first facet that I want you to see this morning in Jesus as he turns this diamond for us is I hope you can see Jesus' compassion. And I want to look at this together because at least to me, Jesus' compassion in this moment feels a little bit misplaced. It, it, it's kind of difficult for me to grasp. I mean, what has this crowd done to deserve the compassion of Jesus at this point? It'd sort of be like a, a miracle worker showing up in downtown Coeur d'Alene, drawing a big crowd, and that's it. That's like what Jesus did. This miracle worker, he shows up, he draws a crowd, but then what if this happened in Coeur d'Alene? Everybody goes out to see him, but then he has compassion on them for absolutely no purpose, as though it seems. And so they're out in the wilderness. They've been out of town in the wilderness for three days. They're hungry. And the question I kept asking is, whose fault is that? <laughs> whose fault is it that they're hungry? I mean, at some point, they're like leaving town, and they're, they're getting like a day out. They're getting two days out. And, and at some point, somebody probably said, hey, um, Maybe we should have thought this through and sent some people out to go get some food and bring it back for us. We didn't give this much forethought. Whose fault is it? And now the, the children are complaining, the babies are crying, everybody's getting seriously hangry, right? They're frustrated, they're hungry, they've been out for three days. But what's happening here? Clearly, this was not Jesus' fault. But it doesn't even matter 
See, Jesus doesn't actually care when it comes to extending salvation to us because the compassion of God actually moves him to come up with a solution to a problem that Jesus did not create, right? In, in the act of salvation in and of itself, like the power of God is made available for those who have no right to this power just because without it, we would be totally lost, and so God's compassion expressed to the world in Jesus doesn't come to us because, because God owes it to us. Or, or whether we have any right to it, it comes to us simply because God's compelled by his love to shower grace and mercy and compassion on lost people like you and me. Is that not good news? And I mean, it, it's super simple but it also couldn't be more counterintuitive, right? I mean, as I thought about this a little bit this last week, I realized that nothing, this, nothing of what Jesus is doing is anything like me. I'm just not that compassionate of a person, right? I kind of want to pull Jesus aside here and say, Jesus, hold the compassion for one minute. They don't deserve it, Right? Because I learned this lesson in elementary school, you guys probably did too, there's posters all over the walls. If you fail to plan, you what? Plan to fail. It's your problem that you're hungry. You failed to plan. These people have to learn from their bad choices, their bad, they have to bear the consequences and if they didn't bring any food with them out into the wilderness, then that was just flat out stupid, right? So part of me wants to like lack compassion and say, hold it, Jesus. They need to learn from this, which is often what it sounds like when we try to justify our own lack of compassion towards others, which I struggle with, right? We often do it under the guise of wisdom. We do it under the guise of this person needs to learn a lesson, but let me ask you this morning, are you trying to teach lessons that Jesus has bypassed with you? to others. Thank God that he's not like me, right? Thank Jesus that he's not like me. So for those who are Christians in this room, I want to invite you to sort of meditate on the compassion of Jesus towards you this morning. You have to understand this is the whole reason that you are in Christ because he's compassionate towards you. This is the whole reason you enjoy new life because God's compassion is the whole reason you have access to his power and his life and his spirit and he alone decided to save you. He decided to extend his grace to you and he would do it all over again if he had to just because without him you'd be lost in the wilderness without any food. We would be. And so the foundation we stand on today is the compassion of God. He loves us that much, and we have to get that. That when we were lost, God had compassion towards us. It's the whole point of texts like Romans 5, 6, 8, and 10. It says like, for while we were still weak, at the, time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So please understand this this morning, that God's compassion flowed into your life while you were weak. 
while you were a sinner, while you were literally at odds with him, you were his enemy. And while the only thing we deserved was his wrath because of our rebellion, like that's what we deserved. But his compassion flowed into our lives because of his love. And so you need to know that God doesn't hold your struggles against you. Some of us really need to know that. You need to know that God doesn't scold you for the doubts that you have in your faith. He's not afraid of your doubts. They don't scare him. You need to know that he doesn't blame us for the sickness that, that, that clings to us spiritually or physically. He doesn't look down on us because we live and work in this world that's been cursed and actually produces thorns and a lot of bad consequences. You need to know that even though you struggle and you fall and you don't do a perfect job of walking this life out with Jesus, he doesn't look down on you for that. He's actually compassionate towards you. And that doesn't make sense. Like whatever you're carrying with you today, and I obviously don't have a clue what that is for each one of you, but I know that we're all carrying things and whatever it is that you're carrying today, you need to understand that God cares about that far more than you could possibly imagine. Sometimes we say things to God like, my problems are fairly insignificant. Like God is doing a whole bunch of things in the world, he's not gonna get tied up with my problems. God has bigger fish to fry, and I'm here to tell you this morning that your problem is exactly what he cares about, that he wants to step in, that he came to bring relief, that God actually has compassion towards you no matter what it is that you're dealing with. And so take a second to look at this text. Look at the text. Remember what Jesus is doing. Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And so he performs this, this miracle, and there's a ton going on, and yet he still has the capacity in his mind, in his heart, to overcome with compassion like a bunch of people who, who just haven't eaten for a while. Like in the grand scheme of things, Jesus takes time to worry about somebody's hunger. And I don't want you to leave here this morning without meditating on the compassion of God. Don't leave here without deciding to remember it tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Like, do whatever it takes. Write yourself a note. Make a note in your phone. Put it on your fridge. Make sure you remind yourself that God is compassionate towards you. And by the way, if you're not a Christian in this room, you need to understand that this compassion is also for you that he's here to meet you in this place this morning. To the people that were crowding around Jesus that day, they did not fit in. These were not the norm. They're crowding around Jesus. And so just like you might feel awkward sitting in this room this morning, feel like maybe you don't fit in, these people understood where you're at. And Jesus' compassion for the crowds here was compassion for a whole bunch of people who felt the exact same way. Like Jesus' compassion demolishes every boundary when we actually go to him. And so this first facet was Jesus' compassion. So Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He, he wants to feed these thousands of people out in the wilderness, which is when these disciples, you, you know, they, they're exercising their human wisdom, they decide to sort of temper Jesus' expectations a little bit, right? Verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get bread, enough bread, in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, how many of you read that and go, do you not remember back a couple weeks? <laughs> he just did that. 
And as I sit and think about this myself, I'm like, how many things have I forgotten about in the last week that, that Jesus has done that I need to remind myself, like, he can do it. He will do it. And this is like the classic disciples. This is why I love them. I'm thankful for their failures because they're recorded for us so that we can fair, feel fairly encouraged in the fact that we fall short as well, right? Verse 34, and Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few, few small fish, small few fish. <laughs> and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. About four weeks ago, we were studying Matthew 14, and we read this story that sounds very familiar to this one, right? It's sort of this replay, this rerun. So right after Jesus heard about John the Baptist's death, he heads out to this desolate place, and his disciples, um, uh, with his disciples, just to go out and get alone. But this crowd of Israelites follows Jesus. They heard he's leaving. They go out into the wilderness with him. They follow him, and we're told the very same thing, that Jesus had compassion on the crowd, that he wanted to feed them. He, he was teaching and doing all these miracles. And so, again, he asked his disciples, how much food do you have? And they said, you know, a couple loaves of bread, and we've got a few fish. And so Jesus used that. He multiplies the food miraculously, and then he feeds the crowd. And so let me ask you, does, this remind, does that remind you of this at all? It's like the same story sort of overlaid. This big group of Israelites, I want you to think about this. When does it remind you of a big group of Israelites out in the wilderness following a leader who are really, really hungry? Have we ever seen that before in scripture? Like how about in the Exodus, right? The Exodus was God delivering his people out of slavery to freedom. And then in the process of that, they end up out in the wilderness and they're hangry, right? And so Matthew, as he writes in chapter 14, paints this picture and was making this connection in Matthew 14 between what Jesus was doing and then the exodus, from Israel, uh, the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And so he's sort of yelling as loudly as he can, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of what Moses pointed to. Like Moses, what did he do? He intercedes for the people and God gives them manna. Jesus, he intercedes for the people and he spreads out this table before them in this place where there's only desolation. There's nothing. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. Nothing exists. And it's sort of this, this, this banquet spread before the people in Jesus. And as many have said, Jesus is the truth and he's the better Moses leading the people of God out of slavery eternally from sin and corruption and death, which makes us question with regards to this particular story in Matthew 15, why does Matthew share it twice? Why, why are there two stories that he shares? Why are there two? Why is this happening? Why did God perform this miracle twice? And I want to argue this morning um, because in reference to something we saw last week, remember last week, Jesus' words to the woman, he said that he had first come to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. 
right? But, but we also saw in Jesus' action that his ministry was never meant to end with the Jewish nation. That wasn't the end of it. That God started with the people of Israel, but it was never meant to just end there. It's why this first feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14 is the nation of Israel. Like if you read it, he's literally feeding them in a Jewish region. And so the second feeding would have thrown sort of a massive wrench into the whole thing for any Jewish readers that are reading Matthew's gospel. Because here, what he's saying is that God's plan doesn't end with the nation of Israel. It's actually for all the nations. By the way, that this, is, this could be why in chapter 14, there's 12 baskets of leftover food. And in the text this morning, we have seven baskets of leftover food. 12 is this number that, that symbolized the nation of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes. Seven in the Bible is this number of completion. And so what Matthew seems to be saying is that the plan of God is not complete without the nations. To reach all people. That Jesus didn't come just to be a Jewish Messiah and save the Jews, but he came to lead this exodus for the entire world, you guys. For the whole world. How does Matthew end his gospel account? Matthew 28, right? Jesus sending out his disciples to all nations, baptizing them. This was the whole point of the gospel of Matthew. And so the second facet that you see as you turn this diamond, the first was Jesus' compassion. The second is this, is sort of the, this radical like inclusivity of Jesus. It, it's mind-boggling. And maybe that sounds a little bit weird to some of us because most often people's primary objection to Christianity um, is that Christian faith seems too exclusive. But if you look at these texts, these thousands of people that Jesus had compassion on were the people that had different gods. In fact, we saw one of them last week with this Canaanite woman, but these were all people that had different expectations, that had different experiences, and yet their hope was the very same as everybody else's. They just wanted freedom, they, they, and they have hope that Jesus had the power to actually give them the freedom that they longed for. And so they went out to the wilderness to see Jesus, and freedom is sort of this universal language that God uses, right? Jesus is the only being in the universe who can actually grant freedom. We hope to get it in the United States, and we won't, because true freedom will only be found in Jesus. If we believe what Colossians, what it says in Colossians, that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. If we truly believe that, then we also need to believe this for anybody, you guys. Anybody, no matter their background, it doesn't matter where we grew up, it doesn't matter what religion you grew up in or you were immersed in, coming to Jesus is returning to our roots for every single one of us, back to the place that God intended for you to start. Another implication of this like radical inclusivity of Jesus is this. Remember the disciples last week as this Canaanite woman comes and she's crying out for mercy. And the disciples begged him in verse 23. What did they beg Jesus to do? Send her away. The disciples like haven't understood this whole inclusivity that Jesus had that he's ushering in. But then look at them now. Like drop down to verse 36. 
Jesus turns the disciples into the distributors of food, right? Like what an amazing picture is this, that last week they were the ones questioning why Jesus would help an outsider, and this week they're the ones that Jesus is using to feed the nations with the nourishment that Jesus provided. How amazing is that? And so this sort of inclusivity of Jesus is there because it's meant to destroy all the boundaries that exist, not just like philosophical and theoretical boundaries, but the boundaries that exist within you and I. Jesus breaks them all down. This is why there's no place whatsoever in the church, in life, in mind or heart, in any Christian or anybody who claims to walk with Jesus, there's no place for racism or prejudice of any time, of any kind, because Jesus sees all, desires for all to come to him. And so some of the basic tenets of our Christian faith are that we are all one in Christ Jesus, that in salvation there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, no male, no female, that in salvation we are the same before our creator God. We're all made equal. And in fact, in heaven, there's going to be a ton of diversity, isn't there? Like, we see that in the book of Revelation, that all people from all nations and tribes and languages worshiping the very same God. Like, talk about the clash of cultures, right? All coming together, and they're all coming together unified under Jesus. And as I thought about this this week, it made me ask myself this question. Do I put this into practice? Because it's easy to have compassion on, it's easy to extend care and kindness and mercy to those that it comes easy for you to do. That's easy. But what about to your enemy? What about to those who have wronged you? What about to those that don't think like you, those that don't act like you, those that don't talk like you? Do you extend compassion to them? Because I think that's the marker of a follower of Jesus. It's easy for me to have kindness and compassion and mercy towards people that I really like, isn't it? It's super easy. And then you look somebody in the face who has harmed you, said all all sorts of evil against you, hurt you in some crazy way, or somebody who doesn't follow the same religion that you do, and you just think like, "I I can extend compassion towards my group of friends at church, but it's really difficult for me to extend that compassion towards anybody outside of those walls. The last facet I want you to see is this, is Jesus' requirement. At the beginning I said that it'd be sort of a mistake to think that salvation is just this moment in time, and I, I want you guys, if you didn't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this last part. That, that salvation, we think at times, that it can be defined just as a conversion experience. And that's not at all what Matthew has in mind as he's writing these words. Like, you have to understand some of what Matthew's been through, you guys. Just some context. I mean, by the time that Matthew puts this pen on paper with this gospel, he's already been there at Pentecost, right? The, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. He's already seen the Gentile church blow up and expand throughout the Roman Empire. 
I mean, he's already seen what it's like to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. He's seen his brotherhood of apostles literally die for the faith. He's seen all of these things. He knows what it is to suffer as you walk with Christ, and he knows what it is to be full of joy. And knowing all of this, as Matthew writes, and he sort of spins this diamond for us to look at so we can catch the glimpse of this, he's not after creating religious experiences. He's not after like a one and done conversion experience. He's not after bow your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand. Matthew has no context for that. He would have, that would have made no sense to him. It actually would have been like, uh, what's that, you know? We're like, bow your heads, close your eyes. If you wanna receive Jesus, raise your hand. Matthew would have been like, uh, this is weird, you know? Like, why don't you just follow Jesus? <laughs> why don't you just jump in, give your life to him, surrender everything, follow after him? Like this was about coming and dying with Jesus, giving your life so that you can have Jesus's life instead. And Matthew was trying to make these spirit-empowered disciples. Like he never experienced our brand of Christian faith. He never saw it. And we're so used to um, where, where you have some kind of conversion experience and maybe you might remember it, maybe you don't remember it, but sometimes the only thing that changes in our life now that you're a believer, a Christian in our American experience is that people check in on, on you when they don't see you at church or community group. And the problem with like our context in America is that it can lead to like seriously diminish joy. Like not the joy that Jesus intended for us to partake in. Because we can easily forget just how great and powerful that salvation actually is because we convince ourselves that coming to Jesus is all that was ever required of us. So as long as I cross that starting line, like I'm good. But walking with Jesus, we don't even know what that is. And Matthew's interested in people that will walk with Jesus. I'll leave you with this. I want you to picture this. A few weeks ago, I had to drive up on Stanley Hill, I think it's called, and Anybody know where Hagedon's old house is? Like there's a massive property. You can't miss it. It looks like Disneyland, right? Up on the hill. It's like, this is odd. It's just this picturesque, massive estate with like a fence and a gate. And it's just huge and gaudy. And there's this long driveway that goes up to the house. And anyway, I, I was driving up there to go somewhere. And as I was driving by, I was looking at this estate and I was thinking about the fact that the moment we come to Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus, your eyes are open. Like you, you do have this conversion experience, like you're made alive and it's, it's like being led into the gate of the massive estate. You're like, whoa, I get to go in there? Rad, you know, like I, I don't even know the dude necessarily, but I get to access this, like I'm going in and then we get in. And once you're inside of this massive estate, there's this long driveway that goes up and there's this mansion on top of the hill with hundreds of rooms and tens of thousands of square feet with treasure to explore. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And then you make your way through the back, out of the, the back of the house and as you walk through the house into the back of the house, there's these rolling hills and these mountains and there's forests and, and rivers and lakes and all kinds of opportunities to get lost in some really, really awesome stuff. And there's far more on offer in the Christian life than many Christians ever experience. 
because we don't actually consider what it means to walk with Jesus. We're, we're invited into this relationship, and so if we use this analogy that I'm talking about as a picture of the Christian life, what we'd also see today is this, that there's hundreds of millions of people just chilling inside of the gate, clogging up the driveway. They've never even made it up to the house. Never seen what's beyond the house in the backyard. No idea the treasure that awaits them and what the richness of following Jesus actually looks like. They came to Jesus, they got inside the gate, and they just stopped. And it kind of makes sense when I was thinking about this because it's nice inside the gate, right? You still get to look at the lawn and the house and you're like, well, this is really cool, you know? All your buddies are hanging out there with you and it's like, oh, we can just, we can just chill at the gate forever, you know? This is an amazing place. Like who, where could we access better property than this? And all these people have made it through the gate because they've accessed Jesus's compassion. Like they know what his inclusivity looks like. They've said yes to Jesus and they've walked in and they've stopped. And the question I have for you is what does it take? What does it take to experience the layers that exist in the Christian life? What does it take to walk with this infinite God? His salvation for us is so immense that we could literally spend our whole entire life, 80, 90, 100 years meditating on it and still feel as though we're seeing it for the very first time every single day. That's how amazing the life with Jesus is. But what does it take to walk with God like that? to take risks, to have his spirit lead you and empower you in actually fulfilling the work that God has called you to, having his power, seeing things happen. Like, what does it take? That third facet was Jesus's requirement of us to walk with him. And so look at the passage, and I wanna know what you see. Like, do you see any requirements of the people in this passage? Because there's only one requirement that I see in this whole passage that Jesus is responding to. One thing, this whole thing. The, the only thing that the crowd brought with them that day as they came to Jesus was what? Hunger. They wanted to be satisfied. And if you're sitting here this morning feeling like, man, like I think there's something just a little bit missing in my walk with God. I think there's something just a little bit out of place. Might I remind you this morning that that's perfect because I do too. I often on a regular basis think, I want that hunger in me for Jesus, for more of Jesus. I don't want to settle at the gates. I don't want to wholly huddle at the front entrance and never actually experience what's beyond the gates and what the land has to offer us and what is like beyond what our eyes can see, what Jesus has for you and I. And I think there's something just a little bit out of place when we just stand there. So what do we do with this? And I'll encourage you with this, and it sounds so simple, is you take it to Jesus. Like you literally just go to him like the woman did last week and say, oh Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Like, I, I wanna walk with you. This is exactly what Jesus calls us to. It's why in Matthew 5, 6, when we started this whole series and we were reading through the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because when you're going to work, uh, because, oh, sorry, um, because then God's gonna actually satisfy the hunger within you. When you come to him and you admit, I'm hungry, I need you, Jesus steps in, he satisfies the hunger that exists within you, but if you spend your whole life denying that there's any hunger or any craving that you want any more of him or that you wanna let any more of him in, then you fail to experience the fullness of what God has for you. Please understand this. You got inside the gate. Awesome. There's so much more. And I read passages like this and I think, there's the thousands of Gentiles with no promise of salvation or freedom coming before Jesus just because they realize we have issues and from what we hear, he's the only one that can satisfy the issues we have and he starts healing them. And then they start going, Jesus starts going, well, they've been with me for three days and they haven't eaten anything and so Jesus sees even beyond the physical issue of like their infirmities and he sees into the heart he sees actually into the stomach and Jesus begins to meet a need and he casts compassion on them he has kindness and mercy towards them and as we sit here this morning might I remind you that he has extended the same to you and I I want to encourage you this morning if you're feeling hungry today if you're hungry for new life, for freedom, for healing, whatever it is, take it to Jesus. Like what better life could there possibly be than to take your hunger to Jesus and all you'll find is his compassion that just blows your mind every time. You'll find his radical inclusivity, which, which means he's extended his grace even to you and to me over and over and over again, time and time again, and there's no better life than that. There's no better way to spend our days exploring the riches of salvation in Jesus and just looking around the world and seeing nothing but opportunities to hand out the bread that you've been given to the rest of the world. I'm gonna close with this. There's a quote from a Sri Lankan pastor named D.T. Niles that once said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Our text ends with this, verse 39. I'll ask the worship team to come up. And after sending away the crowds, he gets into the boat and he goes on to the region of Magadon. So Jesus satisfies the hunger of the people and then he leaves. There's other work to do. There's other people, needs to go uh, meet, other people to preach to. There's more ministry to accomplish. And I have no clue where you're at this morning. We're gonna have this amazing time to come forward and partake of communion this morning. The bread, the body broken, the juice, his blood shed for us. And we do this as a reminder to remember what it is that Christ did for us. What an awesome thing this morning because I think as believers, you need to be reminded that he got you past more than the gate. It's cool to be on the inside, but it's better to go explore what he has to offer you this morning, amen? you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the gift of eternal life. I thank you, uh, Jesus, for setting us free. As I just think often, God, about how much we take it for granted. And this morning, I'm praying for us. I'm praying that we would be a people that wouldn't just look towards a conversion experience and a one and done, but a people that said yes to Jesus and devoted 80, 90, 
a hundred years of their life to following after him and risking it all, chasing after Jesus, laying down every hunger after every hunger and every need and every need after every need at your feet, Jesus, and expecting you to come and meet our needs to satiate the hunger within us. And I thank you, Jesus, that you've done that for us. I thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness, God. I pray this morning that as we even read from your word and we talk through this, that there would be something that would come to life in our hearts, in our spirits, Lord, that we would be a people that would rejoice in the amazing opportunity that Jesus has given us to follow after him. And it doesn't come without great sacrifice on your behalf, Jesus. So Lord, I pray for each person in this this room, those who know you, I pray, God, that today would be a great reminder for them a great reminder, Lord, of the hunger that you have satiated within them and a reminder that there's more ahead if they continue to just follow after you. And Jesus, for those in this room that don't know you, I pray that the more, this morning might be a time where maybe they sit here and they think, God doesn't have time for me. God doesn't care about me. I don't even know if God's real. And as they come before you this morning, God, I know none of those doubts and fears scare you. And I pray, Jesus, that as they express those to you, it would be as the lost Gentiles expressing their need for hunger, that you, Jesus, would meet them in this place and actually quench, satiate what it is within their soul that they're searching for. I thank you, Jesus, for your eternal life, the gift of salvation, and the opportunity to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have one of our elders, Gary, come up here, and he's going to lead us in a time of communion so that we can partake in the the bread and the, the blood of Jesus this morning together.